You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. A couple months ago, me and my family, we went to Brasstown Bald, which is the highest point in the state of Georgia. And like most visitor attractions that you've probably been to, a museum or something else, uh, they had a video there. And my family loves, we love hiking, we love camping. And so as we were there, we, we went and we were trying to figure out what is so special about Brasstown Bald. And so before we went through the small museum they have there and they had activities for the kids, but before we could even grasp that, we had hiked up from the parking lot, so it was just over a mile me and my family, my in-laws. But before we started walking through the museum, we had to have this overview of, here's how we got here. Here's a couple hundred years of history from the inception of our country to here's where you are today in 2020. And so we, in order for us to have this catch-up time and for the museum to mean something to us, for that information to mean something to us, we began with a video. And so we went, we sat in a little a little train and there's there's videos all around, but this one had a video of, Here's Brasstown Bald. Here's why this is so important to us as a state and even to us as a nation. So that video gave, it said, here's where we've been. And just so you know, as you walk around, here's a forecast of what you're going to learn and to see. That's where we are in the book of Judges. So last week we looked at Judges chapter 1 beginning in verse number 1. So go there with me if you would. Judges chapter 1. We looked at chapter 1 and we ended at chapter 2 and verse number 5. So this morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 2 in verse number 6, and we're actually going to be looking at a whole other chapter, and we're going to go through chapter 3 in verse number 6. What we're going to see first is that it begins with the death of Joshua. If you were here last week, or if you were watching, or if you've read the book of Judges, you're like, yeah, that's what we talked about last week. That's how last week's passage started. It started the same way. This is set up in two parts, though, because this is kind of part one and part two of this video before we start walking through, okay, now here's what happened. So this is, right now, chapters one and two, we're at the visitor center, and we're still watching this video, okay? Here's what chapter one looked at. It looked at the social, political, geographical analysis of what the Israelites did. That's the, that's the significance of here's where they were, here's who they defeated, and it's like a geography lesson. You're kind of going through there. This person defeated this person. They turn them into their slaves, and you kind of go through. And then you have God's analysis in chapter 2, verse number 4. So today as we pick up in chapter 2, verse number 6, we're going to see, okay, well, he's not talking so much about the geographical, sociopolitical environment. He's talking about the spiritual impact and the spiritual significance of what's happening in Israel. So as we look at this chapter, know that it mirrors chapter one in a way, but it's looking more at the spiritual significance of what's happening in Israel. So we're going to walk through the passage, and then we're going to look at some implications from the passage. So chapter two, in verse number six, if you're there, say, got it? All right. It says this, Judges two, verse six, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, N-U-N, not N-O-N-E, it wasn't like immaculate conception. The son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. Within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris. In the hill country of Ephraim. Okay, I lied. There's a little bit of geography in here. North of the mountain of Garsh. 
And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Now, this whole passage right here, these first few verses, is hearkening back, and it's actually mirroring what Joshua told the people in chapters 23 and 24. And y'all looked at that last week here in McDonough. Here's what Joshua said. He said, go obey God, and if you do, it is going to go well for you. So here he's saying, okay, spiritually, uh, Joshua physically dies, but he says, Go obey the Lord, and if it goes well for you, God is going to bless you. So he's reiterating that. He says, consider the great work in verse number 7, the great work that the Lord has done for Israel. This is significant. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says this here, and some of y'all will be uh, familiar with this, but in in Deuteronomy 6, it says this in verse number 4. And families, by the way, they would talk about this in the temple some, but families would read this every single night before they went to bed. Here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, that may sound familiar because there was a guy named Jesus who said that same thing. Verse number six, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So that's called the Shema. Here's what he says in verse number eight. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So he says, don't forget these things. Don't forget that the Lord our God is one. You shall love him with your heart, your soul, your might. Jesus adds your strength. And then if you look at verse number 20, it says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, when, when your generations ask you, why do we have these laws in place? And what has the Lord done? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. So he's saying, recall what the Lord has done. These are the great works that Judges is talking about. He says in verse 23, and he brought us up out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. So this is the promise that's been there for years. Verse 24, and the Lord commanded us to do all the statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So when Joshua says, hey, you heard this from Moses, Moses who wrote Deuteronomy. When you heard this from Moses, I'm reiterating this. This promise is still true. But then we get to the end right here. Verse number 10, we saw this. And all that generation, talking about Joshua's generation, also were gathered to their fathers. That means they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, this doesn't necessarily know. That word know right there, K-N-O-W, doesn't know. It doesn't mean to know intellectually. It's an experiential word. It's actually, it actually has a sexual connotation of the Hebrew. It means to know intimately, to know personally, to know experientially. It says this next generation did not No, not understand, but did not experience the Lord. So this is sad. 
So as you're watching this video, looking at what we're about to see in Judges, you're like, man, this is, this is depressing. We talked about this last week, but let's look at verse number 11. Here's what we're going to see. I'll read it first. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So he, we, I always grew up saying this word, Baals, you know, if you're a redneck like me. But in Hebrew, it's actually the Baals. There's a little apostrophe right there between it. So the people, they forgot about God, and they turned, they began worshiping these Baals. That word Baals, just for, just for reference, um, whenever, usually when we read it here, like in the scriptures, we see Baals, it means God, it means a Lord. It can mean the word husband or master. I'm not equating all those things, but those are the interpretations of that word. But usually when you see the word Baal throughout the Old Testament, it's put with another word, which means a God of the sun, a God of the land, a God of fertility, a God of children, a God of our ancestors, a God of something. But notice the difference here. We have all these Baals, but God says, Yahweh, Hebrew God says, I am one. I stand alone. And so these Israelites have turned from the one true God. We saw it in Deuteronomy 6, and they've turned to all of these Baals. Baal is a weather God when it talks about him here. In the Hebrew, he's talking about a weather god. And that was the primary god they worshiped. It was a weather god because he affected their lives. Because this is primarily an agricultural society. So if you can't grow plants, you can't feed your animals, you can't eat, you can't survive, you can't live. So here's how they would worship Baal. Is they built a giant temple. In a second, we'll see this other female god. But they had this giant temple with these statues of Baal, Asherah. And they had... Uh, they were very, um, they were very uh, accentuated individuals, uh, the statues were. And so when people saw them, they thought, man, that is an ideal man and an ideal woman. And so they built this temple to these gods, and they would come. And here's what would happen, is their act of worship would be intimacy with each other to encourage this male and female god to have intimacy with each other and thus produce a fertile land. So that's the culture we're looking at. So we go from the great works of the Lord in verse number seven to, hey, now we're worshiping these Baals. Verse number 12. So this is not going well, okay? We're only in verse 11. Verse 12. And they abandoned the Lord. By the way, Lord, whenever you see it like right there with all caps, L-O-R-D, in the Hebrew, that means they're using the word Yahweh. Not just some other lesser Lord. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord's anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals of Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. That's what plunderers do. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. You're like, yeah, no joke. But we keep going. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them, which is where we get the name of this book, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Now, the, the language here is not, uh, it's not lackadaisical. It's intentional. How did they worship the Baals and the Ashtaroth a few verses later? By doing this. 
with temple prostitutes. So he says, this is what you're doing with these other gods. Where were we? Verse 18? Verse 17, they, they uh, turned away from their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. Now notice the cycle here. The Lord was with their judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So he says here, they chased after these gods. So here's the cycle we see. We have first, the people rebel. So we see this in the first few verses. Here, if you're taking notes, you can look at verses 11 through 13. The people rebel. And and here's what we see about the human condition. So if you're like, hey, man, those people, they're not the most intelligent. I'm not like them. Here's where I want you to see where you are like them. We love sin. If you get nothing else from these these verses right here, you're like, man, this this is terrible. They're in great distress. The reason is that they love sin. They couldn't just turn from God. They turned from God to something else. You don't just not worship anything. They forgot about God. They had amnesia. Then they abandoned God. And then they turned to these other gods, which we would call apostasy. So you see the the progression here. It's not just, hey, I just want to start worshiping idols. No, they stopped worshiping God. They rebelled against God. But then God responds in verses 12 and 14. We see this, that God responds with anger. This anger is not in opposition to love. The opposite of love is apathy. Anger is his outworking of love. And it says that he's jealous for them. He's jealous for them. Someone who's jealous of someone means you actually love that person or you want them, or you want to be like them. His anger is burning against these gods they're pursuing because he loves his people. So the people rebel, God gets angry. And if you look at verses 14 and 15, we see this oppression by these enemies. And here's here's what's ironic. And we saw this right there in verse 19. But they chose to worship the gods of these enemies that then oppressed them. And after their oppression, they ran back to their enemies' gods and said, we we still want to worship these gods too. You're like, man, that's just crazy. All right, we'll see. We'll see how crazy it is for them, how crazy it is for us. But understand this, idolatry always leads to slavery. Idolatry always leads to slavery. They're oppressed by their enemies, and so they respond in misery. And it says there in verse number 18, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. And that word groaning is the same word that was used. They groaned when they were in Egypt. They groaned against God when they were walking through the wilderness, when they had nothing to eat. They groaned against God when he provided bread. They said, you know what? We want some meat. They groaned against God when, when they said, we need water. And they hit the rock rather than speaking to that. They groan. This is a, like, this, that's just what they do in this cycle. They groan and groan and groan. Here's what's interesting, though. If you read through chapter 2, what we didn't see, we didn't see the people repenting. And we didn't see the people confessing their sin to God. We don't see the people actually saying, God, have mercy on us. We see the people just complaining and sitting there and groaning. 
So they're sitting there in misery. They never actually cry out to God. But then the next step in verse number 16 is salvation through a chosen leader. So these gods, they pursue these gods, they worship, they have no compassion. They have no forgiveness. They have no grace. These gods are using the Israelites. These enemies are using the Israelites. But salvation is given through Yahweh. You see the distinction here? But what do they do? They keep going back through and through the cycle. The cycle, take a picture, write it down. We're going to see it. We're going to see it dozens of times through the Old Testament. We're going to see it several times in the book of Judges. It's the same cycle every single time. But there's, there's salvation through a chosen leader. That salvation results, we saw it right here, in peace. Verse number 18. For the Lord was moved. He removed that affliction and that oppression from them. He saved them while that judge was in power. There's peace it wasn't because the people cried out to God. It's because they were groaning. And God said, because of my character, because of my great work alone, I'm going to give you peace in the midst of your groaning because I'm gracious, not because you deserve anything. The last step that we see here is that the judge dies in verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they ran right back to those idols. They ran right back to those enemies. They couldn't wait to get back into that sin. In, in the midst of seeing all of God's faithfulness in bringing them peace, as soon as the judge dies, the people still do not repent because they did not know the Lord experientially. They only knew about him even his faithfulness, seeing what he had done and what he was doing did not lead them to repentance. And that's because they were in sin's grips. It had them. This is the cycle. The judge dies. Then what happens? Step number one, the people rebel. It's what happens all throughout the book. But we have to keep going with this, with this overview. Verse number 20. It says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled like a fire against Israel. And he said, because this, notice real quick. I know I keep stopping in the middle of reading this. I apologize. But notice right here, he doesn't talk about my people. His language has transitioned. For the first chapter, right up until verse 19, he's talking about these people as if they're his. Because they are. Notice in verse 20, he says, these people. Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left these nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. In these four verses right here, 20 through 23, we see God's divine compassion turn to divine anger. Those are both characteristics of God, and they are both expressed because of the people's lack of obedience. Chapter 3 picks up. So we have, to, we have to ask the question, why did God leave these people, these Canaanites, in the land. And we're going to see for two reasons. One is to test the people. 
The second one is to teach them to rely on God. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. In other words, to teach them to fight in the strength of God, the way they did when they were at Jericho and the walls fell down. It wasn't because they were blowing the trumpets loud enough for walls to literally fall to the ground. It's because of the power of God. Verse number three, these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath and the Klingons, and the Wookiees, and everybody else. Verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods." This intermarriage led to false worship. If you want to love the world, the quickest way to love the world, to fall in love with the world, is to bind yourself to someone who already loves the world. And that's what they were doing. They lived there among them. We saw that in chapter one. So so we would would think, why why did God leave these people here? Why didn't he just save them, wipe all these folks out? I, I was thinking, similar to the question I think we have sometimes about ourselves, Why, when you say, man, I confess my sin, and we would say, here's your moment of salvation. As soon as you're saved, why are you not just cured of all the sin? Why do we continue to struggle with these things? John Newton, in fact, when he was 80 years old, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote a letter to one of his friends, and he said, I thought by this time in my life, I would be done struggling. He said, but it's creating in me greater wonder for the grace and the faithfulness of God. So the reason that God leaves them there in this land with the Canaanites is the same reason that when you get saved, he doesn't say, poof, you're done with sin. It's so through your whole life, you're growing in your dependence on God. Are we growing in our dependence on God? Or have we simply intermarried? Have we simply adopted the practices of those around us? Have we taken for ourselves these same idols? What's interesting here is is at this point, you're like, man, it is so crazy that God gives these, these folks over. It's just, that does not make sense. Let me tell you what doesn't make sense is the fact that Israel is still on the pages of Scripture. Like the Old Testament is not done yet. What's crazy about the grace of God is not the fact that he brought destruction and distress to these people. What's crazy about the grace and the mercy of God is that Israel still has a future, that God is not done with them yet. Here's some things that I want us to see from this passage this morning. The first one is this. The greatest threat to your family, to your family that you're sitting there with in one of these nice seats on your couch as you're driving down the road, wherever you are, the greatest threat to your family and to this church family is asking God to coexist with idols. The greatest threat to your family is asking God to coexist with idols. 
you say, okay, I wanna, I wanna avoid that. Here's what we must do first, is identify the gods of the culture around us. Identify the gods of the culture. Now, the gods that I'm gonna talk about in a second, they're not made out of stone and wood and brick. It's not like these. Nobody's gonna say, man, I, I'm just really struggling with a fertility god. Man, that, the sun god, the agriculture god, they just, they have my heart this week. Y'all pray, nobody's gonna say that. We have different gods though, that in our culture seek to accomplish the same thing. First, consider the, the God of money. We think that once we get enough money, or if I had a little more money, or if I pursue money, then things are gonna go well for my family. I can provide for my family. My, my wife is going to respect me. My kids are gonna love me. I can provide the best thing for them. And we begin pursuing money. But what happens is, it's never enough. And we end up neglecting our family because we're at work so much. We're always worried because we're like, man, am I secure? Have I provided protection? Is this enough? Again, consider the gods that the Israelites are pursuing. Consider pursuing reputation. You think, man, I want to be the person that when I walk into a room, I want people to recognize me for who I am and what I've done. Anybody there? You want to be seen as powerful. You want to be seen as the man, as the woman. That person's got it all together. But what ends up happening is you become bitter towards everyone around you. You become hypersensitive to any sort of critique because any sort of, hey, why don't you try this in your life? It's like, oh man, you're going at my identity because my identity is rooted in my reputation. Somebody said something to me this morning. They said, man, I agree with what you were saying, but the way you said that could have been a 180 from where it was. I which is one of the first times I've ever heard this in my life. You know? I'm just kidding. If you know me, you're like, bro, that's like every conversation we have. And at first I was like, man, that hits me in the heart. And let me tell you why you're wrong and that other person was wrong and why I'm right. Now I went back and apologized to those people in just a few moments. But it hurt because I want my reputation to be good because criticism hurts me. And so we become bitter towards other people. We become sarcastic towards other people. We put up a wall. And so instead of engaging in a relationship, there's a wall there. The third thing that our culture encourages us to pursue is sensuality. There's already so much in this text that I'm trying to, you know, weave around to keep it kind of like between G and PG. But we, they want us to pursue sensuality. And the same is true here with these gods that we see in Judges chapter 2 and chapter 3. But consider for your own life, we want immediate pleasure with convenience, but we don't want commitment. Where that leaves us is in shame. It leaves us in distrust. It leaves us in guilt. It leaves us feeling dirty. It leaves us dissatisfied. So we all pursue these gods, these idols. We all pursue sin because it promises power. It promises success. It promises pleasure. It promises rewards. But do any of those outcomes, the ones we just talked about, do any of those actually look like freedom? They don't. The shame, the anger, the bitterness, the sarcasm, the loss of family, the loss of your reputation. None of those things look like freedom. Sin is imperialistic. 
Sin is, it, it wants to take over every part of your life. Consider money for a second. Consider, we won't say money. Consider greed for a moment. That's where we are. Like, ah, I struggle with money. No, you struggle with greed. It's a sin. Money's not a sin. You struggle with, you struggle with covetousness and you struggle with greed. I'm right there with you. I love Amazon Prime. I'm right there with you, okay? John D. Rockefeller, who lived 100 years ago, people still say he's the richest person, at least in America, maybe on the face of the planet, in history, if you, you know, make up for inflation. Somebody asked him one time, a reporter said, how much money is enough? This dude had all the money. He couldn't spend it all. He literally, generations later, they can't spend it all. A reporter said, how much money is enough? He said, one more dollar. One more dollar. Consider the this, this sin of, of sensuality. How, how many more videos, how many more pictures, how many more texting conversations are enough? Man, just one more. That's why if you look at the past year of, if you compare social media sites to the sites that are most prolific, for providing these services to you online, there is a multiple of clicks on these sites. Actually, the number one site in the world. It is a multiple of the number of clicks that show up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok combined per day. Per day in the world. They said, I read this last night, over three billion people click on their site every single day. That's a lot of people. That's something that we're struggling with. Sin is imperialistic. It wants to destroy your family. Identify the false gods in the culture around us. In order to do that, we must inspect what we give ourselves to. Inspect what you give yourself to for you and your family. What are the things you have? How do you spend your time? What kind of shows do you watch on TV? What does your entertainment look like? What do you celebrate with your family? And here are two questions. One, am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? So you can line that up. What are the things that you and your family value? Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? Secondly, this one is much more difficult. Am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area. If he says, I want you to stop doing this, start doing this, put this aside, give more to this, give less to this. Wherever your answer to either one of these questions is no, you either have an idol that is there in your heart, in your life, in your family, in your home, or you have one that's creeping in. So inspect the things that you give yourself to. I would say when we consider these, the fact that idols cannot coexist with God, I would say thirdly this, invest in the next generations. Invest in the next generations. Their faith should not just be a copy of yours, but they must be converted. They shouldn't be a copy, but they should be converted. They should be transformed. That begins at home. We saw in Deuteronomy chapter six, this is families. It talks here about family. The church is only here as a supplement at best. You're only here for a short time. You as parents, you as individuals, you are there in your home. Invest in your children. 
There shouldn't be a, a, a separation between uh, the, the, the things that we see as doctrine. Like, yes, we believe these things about God. We believe these things about the church. But in our, in our lives, we don't actually value these things practically. There, there shouldn't be hypocrisy. There shouldn't be a dichotomy there between what we say we believe and the things that we love and the way that we live. Your kids see that. There is way more in the walls of your home that is caught rather than taught. And I would even say, I think most of us depend on the institution to teach our kids. Whether that's the church, a Christian school, a Christian college, a seminary, somebody else, a Bible study, a life group, a DNA group. And I'm all for those things. I went to all those things. I sent my kids to those things. I, want to, I told Shannon yesterday that I want to re-enroll in one of those things. Like, I, I love institutions. They're really good. I love learning and knowledge. But they are insufficient to disciple your children. He has given you the responsibility as a parent. He has given us the responsibility as a local church. Be jealous for those that you love. And when you see idols creeping in, be angry about those idols. You're jealous because you love them. You love your spouse. You love your kids. What we have here, not just a, a picture of family, but throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have this, this picture of marriage. And that's why one of the, one of the definitions I think is very, is very um, is, uh, it makes sense that one of the definitions of Baal means husband. Because God says that he loves us, his people, like a groom loves a bride. He calls his people his, his bride. He calls the church his bride. We, he is our groom, and he loves us perfectly. He, he wants what's best for us. That's why he says the very first commandment is, don't make any other gods. Worship me alone. That's where you're going to find ultimate joy and satisfaction and love is in being with a, in a relationship with me, your perfect husband. And yet we... Here, Here's the picture. If you want to go back to chapter two and look at that, that, some of that language there, what he's talking about. He says, yes, you're in a relationship with this husband, but you as the wife, you are going, and he uses this picture of prostitutes, but he says, you're going and you are becoming a whore to these gods. So what he is saying, he's saying, you become a married prostitute. You see these lusty fertility gods. You see these gods who are going to provide sex, power, money, success, and you go and you pursue them. You're in a relationship with God, at least you say you are, with the groom who loves you, and he's saying, stop, don't, don't run after those things. Those things aren't going to please you. He's sitting back as the, as the jilted, hurt lover, but he's still forgiven. He's pursuing you. He's saying, please, please don't run after those things. He says the, the life of a prostitute is desperate, they give themselves intimately to these things with nothing in return. There's no real love. There's no real relationship with these other idols. Stop pursuing these things. You're only going to end up hurt. You're only going to end up wanting. Those idols don't care for you. They, they don't care about you. There's no compassion. There's no love. But I'm sitting at home waiting on you, pleading with you, pursuing you, saying, I'm the groom. And we're like, yeah, that's cool, but we're going to go over here and do this instead. He's saying it's sick. You're giving yourself to all these things. In fact, all of these gods can be worshiped at the same time. And they don't care. 
That's why they have so many. None of the Canaanite gods, none of the gods in our society say, I want all of you. All of them say, I want a piece of you. And so we dish out ourselves as a married prostitute. Yep, I'll spend some time here. I'll spend some time here, 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 here. And then look at your life. Look at the things you value. Do we even have time for it? But instead, Yahweh, God says, I want all of you. Instead of you saying, you are sovereign, you are in control. That's what as a married prostitute, that, that, that person is saying, we are saying, I'm sovereign, I'm in control. I get to, to decide what I worship, when I worship it, what it looks like to worship it. That's sovereignty inside of myself. But God says, I am sovereign, I am loving, I am gracious, worship me alone. That's the difference. Idols and God cannot coexist. It is detrimental to us as families. So the greatest threat to our families is asking God to coexist with idols. But the clearest reality of God's faithfulness is his unrelenting mercy. He created us in his image in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. By the way, again, where we see this mirroring, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are just alike. They just tell the story a little different ways. Genesis chapter 3 hits, we fall into sin. What does God do? He responds in mercy and says, I'm going to cover your sin. We see this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. It's called this proto-evangelium, this foreshadowing, the first time that the evangelium, the good news of Jesus is mentioned, and he covers the shame in the bodies of Adam and Eve, and he says, here's a blood offering that's going to suffice only for a minute, but there's a better sacrifice coming. So we see the, the, the faithfulness of God. We see him pursuing his people through Noah. He preserves his people. Then we get to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and says, I want you to be the father of many nations. And then in Genesis chapter 15, we say the same story uh, again as in Genesis chapter 12. And God appears to Abram in a dream. And here's the dream. There, there was a thing called the cleaving of the animals. And what they would do when they made a, a covenant together, and this is for people, but God in his dream showed Abram this. They would take five animals and they would cut them right in half. And they would put the animal carcasses, one on each side. And the two parties who were entering into a covenant would put their arms around each other. And they would walk through the blood of those animals. As they walked through in their sandals, the bottom of their robes would be splashing in that blood. And here's what that signified. What they were saying to each other and everyone who was gathered there. If I break this covenant, may my blood be like the blood of these animals. But here's what's interesting. God is the one who initiates that covenant with Abram. And God says, this covenant is going to be fulfilled by me because I know you are going to break this covenant. And in the midst of you breaking that covenant, my son's blood is going to be the payment for your sin, for your guilt. The picture of those animals is the picture of Jesus Christ. It's the fulfillment of the covenant. So how do we know that God's faithfulness is most on display here? Ultimately in Jesus. But even here, he provides for his people. He provides for us as his church. And one day he is coming back as a judge, the ultimate judge, to redeem us, to be in perfect relationship with himself. When there's no more presence of sin in our hearts, when there's no more power of sin, there's no more pull on us. 
the clearest reality of God's faithfulness is his unrelenting mercy for us. The next thing we see is that the surest test of your faith is to look at your obedience. When I was in college, I, I lived in Southern California, and I went rock climbing with some guys one day, and we did that on occasion. And uh, my first time out, uh, we, we went up to this, to this spot there uh, in, just north of L.A., and I remember we were actually going to go, we, were, we would climb some, we would repel some. My first day repelling, uh, we got to the top of these rocks, we got it all hitched up. Uh, my buddy Josh, he had watched some videos online on how to do this, and so he was an expert. You're like, oh, that's funny. But I do the same thing with uh, theology blogs. Anyway, so this guy was, he was an expert on how to, you know, make sure we weren't going to die. So I lean over, I look, and uh, it's about a 50, 60 foot drop to the bottom to my death. And so I look over, I'm like, okay, what's the plan again? Well, you're going to hook, you're going to hook this harness up. You got this rope and we're going to tie it off and I'm going to lower you down. All right, fair enough. You know, I'm, I'm 20 years old. Uh, you know, I'm at, at the peak of my um, intellect. And so I, I lean back on this, right? He says, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to, to lean back. And so I said, okay. He said, no, no, no I want you to lean back. So I, I put my feet on the edge of this, of, the, of this rock face. I said, all right. And I leaned all the way back. And at that moment, my life was literally in Josh's hands. And the other guy was sitting there looking like, oh, oh, okay, all right, dog. And so I'm leaning back fully in this. He says, now to repel, you need to jump down, and I'm going to lower it, and you're going to go down this rock face. So I said, okay, I'll jump. You know? and so I'm scared to death. I look over. I'm, I'm scared of heights. I hate them. I look over. I'm hanging here, my life, you know, on the line. I begin to jump further and further, finally make it to the bottom. I didn't die. I'd make it to the bottom because I, I didn't want to like a fool. Like I, maybe like some of y'all struggle with pride. And so I finally made it to the bottom. I was like, oh man, it's crazy. Rock climbing is different than rappelling. Many of us are self-righteous rock climbers. And here's what I mean by that. When we're rock climbing, when you go rock climbing, the rope is there just as a safety net. In case you lose your grip or your footing, you have the rope there. You slip and fall. Oh, the rope is there. Man, but most of the work is up to you. It's up to the strength in your hands, to your balance. I was always terrible. I don't have any balance because I'm just tall and lanky and goofy. And like, I just don't have that. Some of y'all can relate. Uh, so that's rock climbing. It's mostly up to you. The rope is just there if it's necessary. But when you go repelling, that's an act of faith. And so I would ask you, what does your life look like? Is it like, is it, is it man, I've got, I've got God kind of as a backup, like in case I fall, but most of it's up to me. Most of my spiritual life is rock climbing. Or are you fully vested in the good work of God? Have you leaned back and said, whatever you want, Lord, whatever you want. Chris said this last week. He said, uh, for some of us, y'all are saying, you're saying, I can't. But God is saying, you won't. Are you trusting and resting in God? In those times, you're like, man, I can't say no to that. I, I, I can't say yes to that. I can't say no to my sin. I can't say yes to investing more, to spending more time in this. What kind of faith do you have? Because the surest test of your faith is to look at your obedience. I would encourage y'all, Ephesians 4 talks, I love Ephesians 4, my favorite, favorite chapter in the Bible, favorite book of the Bible. But it says that all of us are necessary for the furtherance of the church, for the furtherance of the kingdom, for the furtherance of the gospel. Unless we look, unless, in, unless we look at these gods of the culture and say, you know what, 
Uh, I've got God over here on the side, but I'm also going to pursue these other things. No, no, that, that's not how we operate. These idols don't have a corner on your job. These Baals, these gods, these false gods don't have a corner on intimacy with someone else. They don't have a corner on agriculture. They don't have a, a, a corner on the arts. We need people, individuals, children, parents who are pursuing Christ with everything. We need Christian electricians and plumbers and healthcare workers and leaders and stay-at-home moms. We need those folks. And so are you being obedient in every facet of your life? Or there are parts you're like, eh, I mean, does, does God really care about that? Yes, he absolutely does. The, the challenge for us is the same challenge for these Israelite people. Peter talks about it in chapter, in chapter 2 of his first letter. He says, we are in this culture, we are in this climate, we are in this society as aliens, as sojourners. And I would encourage you. I had, I'd had a guy text me this past week. He said, man, I just get so depressed from looking at all the political news that's happening. And I'm like, yeah, I hate Facebook. And I hate everybody on Facebook. Like, I hate, like it's, just, it's just depressing. I can't stand it. It's just terrible all the time. It's bad. Because that oftentimes is where our hope is. And it's going to let us down. And it has let us down for centuries. <laughs> Not just for weeks or months, but for centuries. And it will but 1 Peter 2 says, be known by your good works. The, the problem with all saviors is the same. Whether they're religious saviors or political saviors, whatever you're pursuing with your life, the problem is the same with, with all saviors. Because I have a problem. One, I need to be saved from my sin. Secondly, I need to be saved from death. Those are the two problems in my life, are sin and death. Every single religious system it, it may say some good things. Most of them do. Most of them, a lot of it's good stuff. But every single one besides Christianity, every single belief system, their leader has died or is going to die if you've got some new ones. But their leader is going to die. They can't fix the problem of sin and they cannot fix the problem of death. But friends, this morning, we have a savior who has fixed that problem. The greatest two problems that we have, sin and death, Jesus came down to live a perfect life on our behalf, perfectly fulfilling the covenant and the law for us. And then he was placed into the ground, dead as a doornail for three days. Then through the power of the Spirit, he rose to life again. That is our king. That's who we serve and worship. That's why Joshua says, choose you this day who you're going to serve. Those are the options. Are we going to serve a lesser God or the one true God? Because these lesser gods may provide immediate gratification. But the God of the Bible says, I'm going to provide you with everlasting satisfaction. Immediate gratification, everlasting satisfaction. A lesser God is going to say, here's momentary happiness. The God of the Bible says, here's eternal joy. The idols that we give ourselves to only want to use us. But the God of the Bible says, I want to equip you. The gods that we pursue, that we give ourselves to are man-made. But Yahweh says, I want to create you in my image to worship me. Our identity in lesser idols is that of being vulnerable. But when your identity is in Christ, you are secure. 
With idols, you are a slave, and in Christ, you are free. With idols, you are constantly pursuing something else. You're desperate for more. But when you're pursuing the God of the Bible, you are free to give sacrificially. When you're pursuing idols, all they provide for you is guilt and shame. But Jesus Christ provides a ransom. So who will you serve? A God that enslaves or the God that saves? Who has given himself for us? This problem of, well, he calls us to be faithful, but we're not. So we deserve his judgment, his punishment. But he's also created us in his image and he loves us unconditionally. That tension, we can't solve that. And that's good news because it is only solved in Jesus Christ on the cross. He was ultimately judged for us. He received the wrath of God so that we could receive that conditional love of God on the condition, not of us, but on Jesus Christ. We receive the conditional love of God and we're brought back into a relationship. Remember Genesis chapter three, we're back in right standing. We, we're experiencing the unconditional love of God because God continues to pursue us. He continues to love us. And he's saying, what kind of faith do you have? Is it a rock climbing faith where it's mostly up to you, which is no faith at all? Or is it a faith where you're fully trusting in me? Because even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, God is faithful. And that is our only hope in life and in death. So we celebrate and we, we, we read the book of Judges, not looking and say, how can we not pursue these things? It's, it's, uh, it's like going to the beach. I love going to the beach. I love it even more than camping. And if you have a beach house, let me know. I love to use it for free. But I love going to the beach. But you know, when you go to you set up in the morning, you go, you set up, you're like, okay, here's where we're going to be. You got tents out there. Uh, you know, you've got like a generator. So you've got air conditioning for some of y'all. You got like TVs, but you, you got like at least the chairs that are out there. You know, this is where we're setting up. This is our, this is our hub of operation. And you start walking out into the water. Me and my two boys always do this. And we go out there and we jump in the waves and you turn and you look at the seashore and you're like, wait, where, where'd they go? Shannon already found somebody else. Like, you know, what, what, what happened? But then you look down and you're like, oh, that's where we are. What, what took you down? That current took you down. And it, you didn't even notice it. It's just there. And you're just out there having fun, jumping in the waves. And before you know it, you're way over here. So what do you have to do? You've got to recorrect. Now, as you're out there jumping waves, you're not just fighting against the current but you're saying, here's where I want to be. In our spiritual lives, I'm not saying, hey, just say no to sin, just say no to sin, just say no to sin. I'm saying no. As we say no to sin, it's because we're looking at Christ and saying, this is the best thing to worship. He is all satisfying. He is all joyful. He has blessed us with Jesus Christ he doesn't say, hey, you better serve me or else. He says, no, you get the opportunity to serve me. You get the opportunity to obey. And that is a great calling, friends. May we do that. This morning, uh, we already asked you about communion. If you would take that, we celebrate Jesus Christ and what he has done through this tangible, real, experiential meal. This is, this is uh, both a physical thing and still a very real spiritual thing. If you look historically, this was the, the crux of the early church, was us partaking in communion together. 
We do this to remember who Jesus Christ is and what he's done on our behalf. And we can look back and say, yeah, he had some great works in the Old Testament, but the greatest work is Jesus Christ on the cross, taking the wrath and judgment of the Father on our behalf. That's the greatest work. His body was broken for us so that we could be made whole. His blood was shed to cover us so that when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see nasty, dirty Michael Powell fill in your name. He sees the blood of Christ, which was perfect, which was shed for us. It was shed for you. So as we remember that, we respond in repentance. And I would encourage you, however the Spirit, through this text, and maybe you're like, yeah, the Spirit hasn't doubled me at all. I would encourage you, let's consider those areas where we are trying to make these lesser gods coexist with the creator of the universe and repent of those lesser gods, and turn to Yahweh, turn to God, turn to Jesus Christ, and repent of those areas. But we also have the opportunity, as we leave from here in a few moments, to rejoice in who Jesus Christ is. We get to rejoice that we are a light in the midst of darkness. So as we partake, this is a meal that was instituted by Jesus Christ, which, by the way, looks back at the Passover which is when the spirit passed over those in Egypt. He did not kill the firstborn because Jesus Christ was going to be the firstborn killed on our behalf. You can open the top layer there. There's a piece of fake bread. This represents, and as we eat this, we're remembering and we are identifying with the broken body of Jesus Christ. We're acknowledging his body was broken so mine doesn't have to be. Yet he has called me to follow him in every single area of life. And Jesus commanded his disciples, he said, take, eat ye all of it. The second part of this contraption is a a little cup of juice. This represents the blood of Christ. It represents the life of Christ that was perfect. He identifies with us in life, in the incarnation, in flesh, yet and he identifies with us even in the temptation to be sin, to, to sin, but he did not sin. He was perfect in every way and never even had a bad thought. Isn't that wild? So when we drink this juice, we're reminded that Jesus Christ, he paid for our sin. Not a drop of his blood was for himself. Genesis 15, the the cleaving of the animals. When when we walk through now in the blood of Jesus, when we partake in this, when we know this and experience this, it's only because of the grace and mercy of God. And Jesus told the disciples there in the upper room, he said, take, drink ye all of it. In a minute, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna be sent out with a benediction I would encourage you, if the Spirit is dealing with you, if you're like, man, I've got, I've got unconfessed sin, please know, brother and sister, that, that, that unconfessed sin is affecting us as a body, and it's detrimental to our body, even if I don't know about it right now. It hurts our body. Your personal sin, if you were part of this body, it hurts all of us. I would compel you through the power of the Spirit to confess that sin, to repent of that. If you need to do that, I'll be up here in front of the stage, come talk to me. If you need prayer for something, come talk to me. We'll be praying for you. We engage in life groups and DNA groups together for the sake of the glory of God so that he can be made known in our lives 
and in the lives of those around us. This morning I woke up and I walked downstairs and I looked out my window at all of my neighbors and I thought, I thought, man, I'm about to go preach to some people for almost an hour. I know it feels like three. And it's like, is, is, does, would my neighbors even care about hearing this? Probably not. But this is the greatest news that they could ever hear is that they can have a relationship with God the Father once again. And normally I'm praying for our church family. I did that on the way here. But I sat and I prayed for the lost in my neighborhood by name and looked at their homes. As they wake up this morning, may this be known. And this afternoon and tomorrow and this week and this month, may my feet in the old King James be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. May the peace that we have in Christ because of his mercy be made known to those around us and among us. Let us pray. Father, as we looked at your word this morning, I pray that you would superintend the effects and the results of that where my words have been weak or mumbled or stuttered. I pray that the spirit would circumvent those distractions. I pray that we would leave from here as a bride and as a church body more in love with our Savior and with the the groom than when we walked in. May that be good news to us on our hearts, in our homes, as families. It may be good news to a lost and to a dying world. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the conviction of the Spirit. I pray that we would leave from here encouraged and compelled by the grace and the relentless mercy of God. It's in His Son's name that we pray. Amen.